Good morning, everyone. I hope you're doing okay and that you're finding healthy ways to cope with the fatigue that I feel is settling in from our social distancing and the disruption to our normal way of living. And I hope our online worship is a source of encouragement to you. You know, if you need prayer or you're feeling really isolated or alone, please let us know. We'd be happy to reach out in a more personal way. Well, we're finishing up a series on storm stories in the Bible, and today we're going to look at what is the most famous biblical storm story about Jonah, you know, the reluctant prophet. Now, everybody knows at least bits and pieces of the Jonah story, but many people kind of relegated it to children's Sunday school or VBS. It actually has a lot to say to us as adults. But first, I have to admit, I made a mistake in last week's message. I know, I know that's hard to believe, but it does happen occasionally. Last week I said that I thought the most widely norm, known storm story outside of the Bible was the classic novel of shipwreck, Robinson Crusoe. But I have to admit today I was wrong about that. More famous as a storm story than Robinson Crusoe is the epic poem, The Odyssey, written by Homer. Not Homer Simpson for all you illiterates out there. Homer, the ancient Greek poet who wrote about a thousand years before Christ. The Odyssey is about Odysseus this great Greek hero who is just trying to sail home to Ithaca, which is on the western side of Greece. It's after the end of the Trojan War. The city of Troy was located near what would be modern-day Gallipoli on the northwest shoreline of Turkey on the Aegean Sea. The voyage down the eastern side of Greece and then up the Ionian Sea to Ithaca should have taken a couple of weeks at most. But Odysseus ends up on a journey that lasts 10 years. Somehow he got a few of the Greek gods mad at him, so they threw every obstacle in his way. The giant one-eyed cyclops, the seductive sirens whose songs would lure ships to their destruction, Calypso who imprisons him. It's just one storm story after another for ten years. So I have to admit, the Odyssey is a bigger storm story than Robinson Crusoe. Now here's what I think is interesting about these two storm stories, the Odyssey and then the Jonah story. Throughout the whole 10-year saga, Odysseus is so noble, so courageous, so cunning, so virtuous. He is the epitome of what the ancient Greeks admired in a man. He is strong and brave and stoic and true, true to his mission, true to his quest, his journey home. He is the epitome of Greek masculinity. He is everything you would want a hero to be. And then you have Jonah, who's basically a coward. A coward who runs away from the mission God gives to him. He is not true to his calling. He is not courageous or virtuous. He is bitter and self-destructive. He's not what you would want anyone to be, man or woman. And yet God uses this, this shell of a man in a powerful way so that he becomes one of the most effective evangelists of all time. One sermon and the entire city of Nineveh repents and returns to Yahweh God. One lackluster sermon, over 100,000 people turn to the Lord. So what's the deal with Jonah and Nineveh? Well, chapter 1 kind of starts off with a bang. Let me read from verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Well, according to 2 Kings chapter 14, Jonah lived in a little bitty village called Gath-Hefer in northern Israel. It's about three miles from Nazareth. 
Uh, Nineveh was about 570 miles northeast of Israel on the other side of this vast desert that now spreads across modern-day Syria, Jordan, and western Iraq. To get to Nineveh, Jonah would have had to travel north through modern-day Syria and then take a, take a hard right, go east. Uh, the modern city, uh, Iraqi city of Mosul, now sits where Nineveh once was on the banks of the Tigris River. But Jonah doesn't do that journey. He doesn't do what God asks. Instead, he goes south and west to the city of Joppa on the Mediterranean coast. From there, he finds a ship going to Tarshish, which is over 2,000 miles west across the Mediterranean Sea on the coast of Spain. Tarshish was literally as far away from Nineveh as was humanly possible for Jonah to travel at that time. Completely, intentionally, the wrong direction. It'd be like God telling you to fly from Newark to London and instead you buy a ticket to Los Angeles. Why does, God, uh, why does Jonah go off in the wrong direction? Well, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And Assyria was the arch enemy of God's people. For an Israelite like Jonah to show up in Nineveh preaching about Yahweh, I'm sure Jonah thought that was going to go wrong in all kinds of very horrible ways. I was thinking this week that the modern equivalent would be kind of 100% applicable. As I said, the modern Iraqi city of Mosul now sits on the site of ancient Nineveh. Up until 2017, Mosul was the stronghold of the ISIS terrorist army. That's where they were hacking off heads and burning people alive in, in cages. So God asking Jonah to go to Nineveh would be very much like God asking a modern Jew from Israel to travel to Mosul when the Islamic State was at its peak. I mean, that was a suicide mission. I'm sure that thought was going through Jonah's mind. God is sending me there to die, and I don't want to be a martyr. If that's what God's call in his life was, Jonah didn't want any part of it. He'd rather run to the ends of the earth as far from God as possible. We're also told later that Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he knows God is a gracious and loving God who was going to offer forgiveness to the Assyrians if they would but repent. And Jonah didn't want the Nineveites to repent. He hated them, hated them with a passion, hated them for the way that they had inflicted pain and suffering on the people of Israel. Maybe some in his own family had been killed in the wars against the Assyrians. Whatever the reason, Jonah was bitter. He was angry. He wanted God to, to smash the, the Assyrians, not forgive them. He wanted the full range of God's wrath and anger and judgment to fall on the Assyrians. No way was he going to do anything that might lead even one Assyrian to forgiveness. Jonah was bigoted, stubborn, filled with hate, spiritually out of alignment with God's grace. You know, when other prophets ran to the Lord, Jonah ran away from him. When other prophets followed God's call with a fervent zeal, Jonah wasn't motivated at all. Somewhere he got his internal compass all messed up. So he wound up on a ship bound for Tarshish, running as far away from God's call in his life as possible. But even with us such a sour attitude, with willful disobedience, God does not give up on Jonah. Isn't that good to know? God does not give up on Jonah. Well, you know what happened. Jonah never makes it to Tarshish. The story goes on in verse 4 when God interrupts. It says, Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. There was a big storm brewing, not just on the Mediterranean, but also in Jonah's heart. When the storm hits, Jonah knows, hey, this is all about me. <coughs> Excuse me. 
but he doesn't say anything to the crew as they battle this frightening tempest until they draw straws and Jonah gets the short straw. And Jonah tells the crew the only thing they could do was throw him overboard. It wasn't that he did something noble here. He got caught red-handed as the one running away from God. Telling the crew that the solution was to throw him overboard, that was not a noble gesture by Jonah. It was a suicidal gesture. Just throw me into the sea and I'll just drown. He never mentioned there was another option. Turn the ship around. Sail back to Joppa. That's all they had to do. Jonah could have offered that as a suggestion, but at this stage, Jonah picks drowning over surrendering to God's plan. That's how far out of whack his thinking was. He'd rather drown than follow God's call. Well, the crew doesn't want to do it, but eventually the storm is so great they see no other option, and Jonah gets tossed overboard. But God isn't finished with Jonah, not quite yet. God arranges a second intervention, and a slimy one at that. And this is at the end of chapter 1 and on into chapter 2. Let me read the whole thing. But the Lord provided a great fish to, follow, to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath me barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs, but I, with the song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. I love that line, seaweed was wrapped around my head. Jonah began to get his head together in the digestive tract of this giant fish. What a place to start over. What a place to make a new beginning in life. Slopping around in gastric juice, seaweed, and some krill. In the belly of a fish, probably a whale. Jonah had a chance to take a long, hard look at his short, rebellious life. God finally has Jonah's undivided attention. And boy, does he pray. I mean, he really prays, maybe for the first time, because a crisis can do that. It forces people to pray. Just like there are no atheists in foxholes, there are no rebels in giant fish stomachs. Jonah says in verse 2 that he found himself in the depths of the grave. The Hebrew word there is Sheol, which really refers to the region of the dead. Jonah's admitting he was as good as dead, but God heard his prayer and rescued him. Now, some people get hung up with uh, Jonah being swallowed by the big fish. They dismiss the story as just a myth, a fairy tale, don't really think it happened. You know, I think it did. Historically, there are reports of sailors being swallowed by whales who were later recovered alive. One was published in February 1891 about the Star of the East, a whaling ship from Liverpool, England, that was hunting whales in the South Atlantic near the Falkland Islands. One of their small boats was dragged under by a whale, and the crew of that small boat was lost. But the whale was eventually caught, and as they were cutting up the whale, 
they came to the stomach and they were shocked to see something moving around inside. They quickly, you know, sliced open the stomach and found one of their crew members, a guy named James Bartley. He was alive inside. He was delirious, just out of his mind for two straight weeks. But eventually, he recovered. Francis, uh, uh, Sir Francis Fox, who wrote the article, said this about Barley. His skin, where it was exposed to the action of the gastric juices, face, neck, and hands, were bleached to a deadly whiteness and took on the appearance of parchment and never recovered its natural appearance, though otherwise his health did not seem to be affected by his horrible experience. Could this just be a sailor's yarn? Maybe. But could something similar have happened to Jonah? I think so. More important than the newspaper reports of whaling ships, Jesus believed the Jonah story to be historically and factually true. In Matthew 12:40, Jesus says, For as the Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. With that kind of endorsement from Jesus, I think it's safe to say that God is big enough to orchestrate the circumstances any way he wants to when he's really trying to get someone's attention. And can you imagine Jonah coming into Nineveh with his skin and his hair bleached completely white? That would have gotten their attention. But as Jonah sank beneath the deep, everything seemed lost. If God had done nothing, Jonah's fate would have been sealed. Though deep in despair, as well as water, Jonah prays in verse 7, I remember you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you. Jonah prayed. I mean, he couldn't help but pray. He prays to God because he knew God personally. You see, Jonah, I, I think he was a sincere believer in God. He knew God in his life as more than just, you know, an impersonal force. He had a relationship with the Lord. He wasn't just someone who, who went through the motions of believing, like people who, who say they know God exists out there somewhere, but they never really go beyond that. I may know that there's a bank on South Street in New Providence, but that doesn't make me rich. I may know that God exists, but that does nothing for my life unless I'm in a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Just knowing that God exists is not the same thing as being in a relationship with him. God wants me to live in a daily connection with him, and that means he has a purpose and a calling upon my life, calling on your life just as he did for Jonah's life. God has a purpose for each one of us as his children. We're not all called to be dramatic evangelists like Jonah, but we are called into God's service. God has a purpose for you and for me, and this period of isolation is actually a good time to ask yourself, do I really know what God's call on my life really is? I mean, do you know? Do you have a sense of being in right alignment with Christ in your life, or have you sensed that things are maybe misaligned somehow? God's call mostly has to do with, with who you are your character, the way you treat people, how you influence others towards Christ. God's call also has to do with what you do with your time, you know, your career, the place you work, or what you do to build up your community. God's call often has to do with your family and your relationships as a parent, husband, wife, mother, father, son, daughter, brother, sister, cousin, uncle, aunt, friend, all of those important relationships that's part of God's call on your life. Now, I can't tell you what God's specific call on your life might be, but I know one piece of the puzzle is in how you become an influencer in the lives of others. How you become an influencer, not, not a social media guru with 100,000 followers, but how through the way you live your life, 
the way you treat people, the way you interact with others, how you either influence people towards God or possibly away from Him. That's actually the key question about calling. Are you influencing people towards the Lord? Are you just kind of neutral, treading water? Or do you have no influence or are you influencing people away from God? How would you answer that question for your life? I think one of the great truths we get out of the story of Jonah is just how much God loves imperfect people. Jonah was deeply flawed. His heart was not in the right place. But God loved Jonah even when Jonah ran away from him. God sought him out, brought him back, set him on a new path to fulfill his calling. God used this imperfect man in powerful ways. Do you know that about yourself, that God deeply loves you and is seeking you, that his love is undeserved and surprising and amazing and extravagant? Simply because God loves you and he desires to use you in this world. Do you know that unrelenting love of God who will not give up on you no matter what? I hope so. I hope you live each day with a sense of the grace of God over your life, the, the providence of God over your life. And you live each day with a sense of the love of Christ kind of infusing your heart with, and mind and soul and strength. I hope that you cry out to God when you're in the pits like Jonah was and that you feel like you've, you've got seaweed wrapped around your head. I hope you know that you can cry out to the Lord and he will lift you up. But I also hope you know that God has a call on your life just as Jonah had a call. The call might be very different, but God is calling you nevertheless. Maybe you're more like Jonah than you'd like to admit. You know, have you dodged and ducked? Have you squirmed and squealed when God called? Please don't wait to respond to God's call until you're being swallowed up by your circumstances. If God can turn a Jonah around, he can do that for you. God specializes in taking things that are confused and fearful and making them useful and beautiful. Are you responding to God's call? You see, God wants to minister to you so he can minister through you. God wants to minister to you so he can minister through you. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be a spiritual all-star. You just have to be open to God's call and willing to follow through on his will for your life. Why are we so often afraid of that? Afraid of really, you know, yielding ourselves to God. So afraid of really following his call on our lives. The famous psychologist Abraham Maslow, he coined the phrase the Jonah complex to describe this particular kind of fear, the fear of actually getting better, of reaching a better way of life, of living up to your potential, the fear of maybe even doing something great, the fear that blocks your own destiny, uh, that, uh, that makes you run away from your own best possibilities. Do you suffer from the Jonah complex? Are you blocking God's call on your life? Are you going in the wrong direction? Are you keeping yourself so distracted that you can't hear God's call on your life? Don't do that. Jonah had three days in the stomach of the fish. We've got time now to take the time we need in this unique period to intentionally listen for God's call, to read the Bible more seriously, to let God speak to you, to begin to pray daily, to listen for God's call. Your calling from God may not seem to be anything dramatic, but it will perfectly fit who you are and how God has made you. And for that reason, you don't need to be afraid to respond when God leads. I want to close this morning with these words from Dr. Richard Halverson. He was former chaplain of the United States Senate. 
I'm going to post this graphic on our Facebook and Instagram pages if you'd like to have a copy for yourself. It's a good word for all of us reluctant disciples, all of us who struggle like Jonah, who maybe are not so sure about our calling from the Lord. A good reminder of why God sometimes uses storms to get our attention. Dr. Halverson wrote this, and please receive it as this, this, this morning's prayer. You go nowhere by accident. Wherever you go, God is sending you there. Wherever you go, God has put you there. He has a purpose in your being there. Christ who indwells you has something he wants to do through you. Believe this and go in his grace, his love, and power. Amen. God bless you this week.